When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Whistle Stop, Slate's new podcast about curiosities from the campaign trail. I'm John Dickerson. Presidential candidates talk about the poor, but don't actually campaign in the proximity of those who are actually poor. But that wasn't true in 1967, when Republican frontrunner Michigan Governor George Romney toured some of America's hardest-hit neighborhoods on a national listening tour like nothing we've ever seen. That's coming up in a minute. But first, a word from our sponsor. If you're listening to this podcast, then you love history the way I do. And if so, I want to let you know about a favorite set of history lessons being offered by Great Courses. It's called Turning Points in American History. It's really great. These are deep looks into signature moments in American history. Two I've been listening to recently. One was about the plague of 1617. I didn't realize the just sheer millions of Native Americans who died as a result of European illness, and then one on the Battle of Saratoga. What I like is not just the details, but also the sense of context that the professor, Edward O'Donnell, puts into these lessons. The Great Courses created a special limited-time offer for Whistle Stop listeners. That's you. If you order Turning Points in American History, you get 80% off the original price. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop and get your 80% offer. Our whistle stop today is Detroit, Michigan. It's September 11th, 1967, and we're trying to keep up with the granite-like skull of Michigan Governor George Romney as it slices past broken bottles, boarded-up windows, and the puzzled faces and scratched heads of the residents of Detroit's hardest-hit neighborhood. It's the first day of a 19-day tour that Romney is on. It's a tour of what the papers at the time called the ghettos. Romney hadn't declared that he was a presidential candidate, but like today, that was simply a thin charade. He was running for sure, and he was ahead in the polls. In one Harris poll, Romney had 54 percent to Lyndon Johnson's 46 percent. No other Republican was even close to Johnson. And Romney was the undisputed top of the moderate wing of the Republican Party. And that was the dominant wing at the time, unlike today. Moderates were in ascendancy because, as you'll remember, in the previous presidential election in 1964, Barry Goldwater, the stalwart conservative, a choice, not an echo, had had his hat handed to him along with his cattle and his spurs. He won only six states. So the moderates were thinking they were going to be the ones to win the presidency next for the Republicans. Romney had been planning to go overseas, right? Because like governors today, he had to show that he could be commander in chief. Nothing says that like a few more stamps in the passport. But then Romney dropped the idea and said he was going to take us tour of the states. Instead, the message of this switch was obvious. The problems at home were more pressing than the problems overseas. And the implicit criticism in that was that Johnson, the sitting president, had taken his eye off of domestic issues and become obsessed with Vietnam, leaving the country to fester, particularly the inner cities. And people viewing at home understood this because that summer they'd seen the riots in Newark, in which in five days, 26 people had been killed. And in Detroit, in Romney's own state, 43 people had died. Romney had had to call out the National Guard to quell the riots. 
Romney opens up the tour with a statement. He says, I think it's important for public officials and through their eyes all citizens to see the horrible conditions which breed frustration, hatred, and revolt. We must arouse ourselves from our comfort, pleasure, and preoccupations and listen to the voices from the ghetto. We must either achieve orderly progress or change will be inflicted with mortal wounds. Romney had a very grand way of speaking. Romney visited Chicago's South Side, Milwaukee, Washington, D.C., Watts, with his slick back hair and face that looked like it belonged on Mount Rushmore. Romney looked like a bald eagle, according to one writer. But unlike a bald eagle, which you'd expect to kind of soar and glide, Romney was this bustling rush of activity. So imagine a bald eagle's head with a hummingbird's wing. That's what was zipping through the ghettos that summer. He would march sometimes for four hours at a stretch in and out of burnt-out buildings, passing shattered storefronts and heaps of trash. In South Carolina, he spent time with one tenant farmer who was 84 years old. They stood on the farmer's sagging porch, a TV antenna bristling overhead, and had a conversation about the poor and poverty in rural areas. In one community center in Rochester, New York, there were so many people in the room to see and talk with Romney that the sweat from one person fell on the clothes from another. Romney, in his dark black suit, thin tie, spoke under the picture of Che Guevara and a sign that read, In a revolution, one lives or dies. This kind of thing just doesn't happen today, where candidates of one party spend time within sweat-dropping proximity of the most radical members of the opposite ideology. Romney was in such a rush to connect and be seen collecting answers to this urgent national problem that he shook the hand of one of the cameramen who'd been following him during one stop, mistaking him for a voter. Twenty members of the press were along for this 19-day trip, eight members of his staff, and then his wife also. Here's how the New York Times described this mix of frantic activity, earnest concern, and slightly unfocused nature of this trip. Quote, in his anxiety to accumulate valid information, Mr. Romney asked from time to time some of the most unanswerable questions on political record. Yesterday morning on the Boston College campus, for example, meeting with a group of academic urban specialists, he asked, what things are underway in this country that now seem pointed in the right direction in terms of what we ought to be doing? The faculty members sat stunned and could not come up with an answer to that question. What was extraordinary about this trip was not that it was devoted to the issue of the inner cities, which was extraordinary enough, but that a candidate would take the political risk to put himself in contact with so many possible volatile situations. I mean, think about today. Events are scripted and squeezed of all serendipity. Candidates are cordoned off from anything that might put them in contact with a surprise. Romney was wading into neighborhoods he knew would be hostile. And that was a particular risk for him because the knock against the governor was that he had only the lightest understanding of public issues, which he proved every time he opened his mouth and produced a garbled public statement. Mike Royko, the famous Chicago columnist, used to say about Mayor Daley of Chicago that he never exited from the same paragraph he entered. And that was also true of Governor Romney. Once again, I'll read to you from the New York Times. All along the way, Mr. Romney had his usual trouble with names. A man who for months called the Washington Star's political correspondent Paul Hope Bob, he succeeded in St. Louis in renaming Henry Armstrong, the former boxing champion, Frank. But he wasn't just about gaffes and looking like he didn't understand the problem he was so aggressively trying to wrestle to the ground in his shirt sleeves. It was that Romney was warned against meeting with militant black leaders, but he went ahead and did it anyway. 
And this led to some predictably tense confrontations. Romney was often lectured to when he went into these community centers, one of them in Detroit, a fellow named Clyde Cleveland, who was chomping on a cigar, pointed himself towards Romney, who was sitting on the edge of his desk and said, you have to learn that you're dealing with a whole new breed of cat that isn't going to take this stuff anymore. There's no black problem in this country. What you've got is a white problem. In Chicago, the leader of a Puerto Rican community center refused to meet with Romney. So Romney goes by his office, and there is an enormous handwritten sign in the plate glass window, and it read, We do not welcome politicians who call out the National Guard on poor people. The statement went on to say that they wouldn't welcome Romney because he was a Mormon, and the Mormon church did not allow blacks in church leadership. That came up a fair amount on this trip in Watts. Romney was heckled, and a man said, Why don't you start by cleaning up your own backyard, referring to the Mormon church. When he got to Washington, Romney stopped to be photographed holding two African-American babies, one on each hip, but he didn't kiss them, as politicians often do. Later in the day, 17-year-old Rufus Catfish Mayfield was giving Romney a tour of one of the tough neighborhoods, and he asked him why he hadn't kissed the black babies. Romney said, I never kiss babies. It's too obvious. And Mayfield just turned to the reporters and said, it's just politics. Constantly undermining this trip was the idea that it was all just for show. Later in Washington, Romney was intercepted by a woman who had a garbage can lid and was thumping it with a rubber spatula. She was backed up by a singing band, and Romney said, I understand your problem, yelled across the street to her. And Rufus said, you're walking too fast to understand the problem. While in Washington, Romney also met some other key figures from the political menagerie. Marion Barry, who would later go on to be mayor of Washington, but who was then a... Uh, a young community activist. And he also, Romney met with J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI. The reason Hoover wanted to talk about the ghettos, as they were called, was that he thought that they provided an inroads for communism in the United States at the time. Romney concluded the tour with this summing up statement. As I have rubbed elbows with those who live in the ghetto, as I have listened to the voices of revolt, I am more convinced than ever before that unless we reverse our course, build a new America, the old one will be destroyed. The L.A. Times wrote, The urban trip seems to have given Romney a new lease on life. Romney's repeated foot-and-mouth lapses that have caused many Republicans to doubt his capacity to handle issues have been solved. On the tour, he showed surprising verbal agility in his sparring with local neighborhood leaders, and they proclaimed that while they thought he had set out on a political tour at first, they came to realize that he was genuinely interested in solving their problems. So what Romney had done is he turned a risk, both because of his verbal campaign gaffes, but also the likelihood of constant confrontation, he turned a risk into a benefit, something politicians today never do. But alas, Romney had embedded the seeds of his campaign's destruction just before heading off on this tour of the ghettos. Asked about his support for the Vietnam War, he'd said he'd been brainwashed. Senator Eugene McCarthy, in one of the great quips of modern politics, who was running against Johnson on the, for the Democratic nomination, said that in Romney's case, a light rinse would have been sufficient. The Detroit Free Press said that it was a disqualifying remark for a candidate to say they had been brainwashed because a commander-in-chief is a job where you're supposed to kind of know your mind and not be so easily melded by others. Romney would never recover with voters. It was a gaffe that was so damaging it would carry over to the next generation where his son was terrified to say anything risky within 20 feet of a camera. Governor Romney's campaign had tried to use the issue of poverty to unseat President Johnson, who had been distracted from his own war on poverty by the Vietnam War. But in the end, the gambit itself was undone by the Vietnam War.
We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at podcasts at slate.com or even better, leave us a review on the iTunes store. Good ones help John's fragile ego and it helps to promote the show, which if you like it is something we all believe in. Plus, it's American. Head over to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. Thanks to our sponsor this week, The Great Courses. Remember, The Turning Points of American History, The Battle of Saratoga, The Plague of 1617, and lots more are available at 80% off at thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. Our producer is Mike Wolo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. Our Whistle Stop intern is Brian Rosenwald, who, in his run for the White House in 2020, will be judged to be too authentic for voters and will have to practice being phony until he finally gives it all up and opens a hard cider bar in a log cabin near Lafayette, Indiana. I'll be back next week with more Tales from the Trail here on Whistle Stop. I'm John Dickerson. 